This right. is an eight iron, and it's a dead shank. Wow. Way right. Oh, Takes a hop off the path. You gotta be kidding me. Very tough pitch shot right here. You gotta hit it into the hill. One hop up and bite, and it's in. Kind of like that. Well, I would like to welcome to the Sub-70 podcast, the great Peter Kessler. Uh, Peter, thanks for taking the time today. A um, lot to talk about of what happened yesterday with Tiger winning the Masters. Well, it's fantastic to be with you. I mean, this is you know, going to be one of the great weeks ever in the sense that we're going to start thinking about what Tiger's win meant. We're going to try to put it into perspective. We're going to think about the Masters and other major championships that warmed our hearts and stirred our emotions and kindled our memories. So this is a fantastic time to join you, and I'm very appreciative that uh, you would call on me. Well, let's uh, let's talk about You've seen a lot of golf in your day. You've been around the sport for a long time. Where do you sort of rank it? You know, where do you put it? What's your sort of, you know, takeaway from the events that unfolded yesterday? Well, I, you know, you, you you have to rank it up there with the most meaningful things that one has ever seen in sport or learned about, you know, considering things that happened, you know, before we were born, like, you know, Ben Hogan's accident in 49. But remember, in that case, the accident was in February of 49. He lost in a playoff for the LA Open the following January. And Yes, things were crushed, and yes, he apparently was near death, and yes, he had pain for the rest of his life, but he won a major in 48, and he had the accident in 49, and he picked right up where he left off in 1950, and won six major championships through 1953, so whatever the damage was to his body uh, certainly didn't seem to damage his game, and quite frankly, a lot of guys who knew Ben Hogan really well at that time, like Tommy Bolt, felt that Hogan's leg action quieted down after the accident because it had to, because it wasn't functioning as it did before. But Ben had been such a, an aggressive lower body player from the top of the swing that now he was able to sync things up a little bit better and not sometimes spin out of his way too soon with his lower body. You think of Jack in 1986 at the Masters. Here he is, 46 years old. You know, nobody expected anything from him that week. He hadn't been making noise recently. But you've got to put that in perspective because between the ages of 38 and 46, Jack won nine times on the PGA Tour, including four major championships, including the four in a row in the order in which they were conceived. He won the British Open, or the Open, in eight, which started in 1860. He won that in 78. Then he won the U.S. Open in 1980, which started in 90, 1895. Then he wins the PGA Championship in 1980, which started in 1916. Then he wins the Masters, Champion in, Masters Championship in 1986 to complete for the third time the modern Grand Slam in all four events, in the order in which they were conceived. So Jack was not irrelevant in 86. He just hadn't done very much recently, but he had won the Memorial. He had won nine times. He was getting ready to win the career slam for the third time. So while it was one of the greatest days in the history of golf in every sense of the word in terms of thinking about your family and your dad and your love for your kids and how you got started with golf and what is it about the golf course that attracted it that attracted it to you to begin with? So that was completely different than the Hogan experience. So now you have this particular one, and, and folks are going to think of other tournaments that meant a lot to them. But in this particular case, you know, here's a fellow who won three juniors, then three U.S. amateurs, and he wins 14 major championships, professional ones, in a fairly brief period of time from 97 to 2008. And now here we are in 2019, and it's more than 10 years since he won his last major. And over that 10-year period, there's a whole lot of guys who only won one major, whether it be Adam Scott or Duffner or Keegan Bradley. It doesn't matter. 
zillion guys have won one in the last 10 years, including Darren Clark and Y.E. Yang. Guess what? Tiger's also won one in the last 10 years. So he just tied 10 or 12 guys who picked up one since he stopped winning in 08. And the only guy who had more major championships before him when he won his last before yesterday major championship in 08, the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines in San Diego, only Nicholas was ahead of him in majors, and only Sneed was ahead of him in wins. Now, as you and I talk today, my friend, Jack Nicholas has 20 major championships. That's 18 professional majors and two amateurs. Jack just decided not to count the amateurs a few years ago because Tiger has three, so Jack figured, well, maybe I shouldn't count them now since Tiger's piling up the pro majors. But in everything Jack ever wrote or said and talked to me about on television, it was always 20. And Tiger always counted his three amateurs and Jack's two. So now it's 20 to 18. And now the next two major championships are taking place where Tiger's particularly comfortable. That doesn't guarantee anything, excuse me. just means that it's a place you're comfortable and you've won before. It doesn't mean you're going to win again. So this Tiger story is, is very complicated. It has so many layers. You've got a story of redemption. You've got a story of second acts in America, meaning you get to come back and do what you did once before well. The great... You know, the writer F. Scott Fitzgerald said in the 1930s, he said, there there are no second acts in American life. Well, we just saw one with Tiger Woods, certainly. You know, and people who come back from failures and people who are trying to move forward, a lot of them get second acts, too. So while it was an interesting turn of phrase, I do believe in second acts in America. I do believe in second acts generally. I believe in second acts for Tiger Woods. I believe in second acts on the golf course. And I think what Tiger did yesterday, starting with his second shot on 11 from the cart path, which is what I think particularly unnerved Francesco, because at that point, Francesco had already snapped an iron in the 10 and didn't turn through the shot. So I looked for it again on 11. He didn't turn through the shot. He definitely hit a, a hooking iron. And if the ground had been firm, which it was not, that ball's easily in the water. But the important thing is he knew that. He knew even though the ground was soft, he got away with one, and he ended up on the green. And then here's Tiger in absolute garbage, 50 yards right of the fairway, on a, on a cart path of crushed rock, and he hits an absolute bullet inside of Francesco. And that's when Francesco knew for sure that he personally was in trouble and that Tiger personally was not. With, with all of the personal stuff that he had to deal with, uh in the last 10 years, and the physical stuff. Did you ever think he would be back even competing at this level, uh, you know, let alone winning? I mean, as you saw the journey, did you, did you always have belief that he was so special that you would see this, or did you think it was too far gone? Yeah, I, I think what happened is I personally got to a point where rooting for Tiger became more a mm, anticipation of things that you hoped would happen as opposed to a, 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 a realistic sense based on his recent experiences. So based on recent experiences, which piled up over now an 11-year period, you know, we know that rooting for him over these last several years, particularly in between back surgeries and some of the other issues that he had to deal with personally, that there was no reason to think he was going to win another major. I mean, he, he wasn't Tiger Woods, that player anymore. And I knew Tiger pretty well from 1996, the end of 96, when he was 20, and he and I did our first TV show together right through the, 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 the slam that, that concluded in 01 at the Masters. And, and I knew him reasonably well then. I wouldn't say we were good friends. That's stretching it. But we were certainly very friendly, you know, and he would take my calls and he would come to the studio whenever I wanted. You know, we had that kind of a thing going for sure, and he trusted me and I loved having him on. But I didn't get close enough to him and his group over these last few years to have a really good sense of what was or was not going on. And his people are, you know, masters of spin and Tiger's a master of deflection and you're not really sure what he really meant. And 
But but what I saw in the last year made me think that, yeah, he could do it again because, you know, he briefly held the lead at the Open Championship at Carnoustie playing with Molinari, who ended up winning. And Tiger wasn't just quite ready yet. You know, he had the lead on the back nine and couldn't quite keep it together. Then he goes to the PGA Championship a few weeks later, shoots upon around 64 and finishes second in the golf tournament. That impressed me. Then he goes to Eastlake, which is a really hard golf course, and it's a wonderful golf course, even though Reese Jones did a little bit of a muck up there, which is what Reese does. And then when he won at Eastlake, the Tour Championship, playing with Rory, that's when I went, you know what? I think he's playing some good golf. He looks like he feels pretty good. I don't see that stress in his face. I don't see those deep furrows in his brow. You know, I remember when Greg Norman had a chance to win the Open Championship that Sink won. That when they got when Greg got to the first tee the last day, I saw this look on his face where his skin appeared to be stretched so tight across his face that if he smiled or he frowned it, the skin might actually crack and and he was a he was a whiter shade of pale as Procol Harum said. He really was and 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 I expected trouble, and he got into trouble with his very first shot. He tried to play some kind of a safety shot instead of playing his game, and I knew right then, you know, that that the whole thing was over. And so, you know, there, there I really believed that coming into this event, that Tiger was the best player who was going to play at the Masters, and that he had the toughest mental game. Now, my son, Christopher, who is in a pool, and I never guess. I am, I'm always saying, nobody knows. Nobody knows anything. Just let him play. Pretend it's a movie. If it was a second scene, you wouldn't ask how it ended. You just let it unfold. Let the golf tournament unfold. You know, yesterday after six holes, guys are saying, that's it. Molinari hit the most incredible chip. It's on the sixth hole. You you have to finish. It's it's like the second inning of a baseball game. It's like, hey, can we get underway here for a second? But, you know, my read was that Tiger coming in was the best player in the best form. And I said to my son, Christopher, I said, I would take Tiger this week. And, of course, he took him. And he had one other pick, and he picked Rory, which I wasn't so sure about one way or the other. I, there's an enigma for you in a one-hour conversation. But I believe that Tiger was the best player going into this event based on what's happened since last summer at Carnoustie. You were down at Augusta. I know you're spending some time with uh, Mr. Gary Player. And d- did he give any sort of insight that you could share of, you know, what he was witnessing as it was unfolding or, you know, thoughts that he saw afterwards of, you know, once again, he's he's reached the highest pinnacles of playing professional golf. And, you know, who better to have some insight of what it takes to win a major in your 40s than Gary Player? Well, that's right. I mean, particularly considering, you know, he had won one. He had won the Masters the year, you know, before at the age of 42 in 1978. So he was intimately familiar. But Gary Player never had any of those kinds of issues or accidents or or, or things to deal with in an interpersonal kind of way. So while he couldn't relate to what Tiger had to go through personally because, well, nobody really could. That was Tiger's life, not Gary's. But, you know, Gary has always said to me that he thought and Arnold said the same thing to me and Jack said the same thing to me that Tiger had the freest release through the strike of anybody that he'd ever seen play golf and he thought he had the best distance control with his irons of anybody he'd ever seen play golf now you know he saw Snead and Hogan and Nelson and Jack and Arnie and Billy I mean you know everybody and Seve and and, uh, you know they all agreed that you know the Tiger was the guy and and during the first several holes yesterday, when people were saying, oh, in particular, Tom Brady wrote a tweet and said, man, nobody's going to beat Molinari, just doesn't make mistakes. And they were only on the sixth hole at that time. And so Gary tweeted back and said, don't worry, everybody makes mistakes. Hang on, they're only on the sixth hole or something to that effect. You know, but starting with the second shot on 11 inside of Molinari's to that green, Tiger never missed another shot. I mean, it was ironclad from the second shot on 11 through the final hole of 18. You know, everything went exactly where it was supposed to go. There were no blocks. There were no snaps. His distance control with his irons was, as usual, better than anybody ever been able to control their iron distances. And so, you know, it was, you know, an incredibly long, 
tough and ultimately very triumphant journey. In your years of dealing with Tiger, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, that you, you knew him as a young professional. Did you see that in him when he was, you kind of, like I said, talked about this a little bit earlier, that he was quite easy to deal with and, you know, it, affable. I remember those interviews used to have, and he had a big smile on his face. And then some point in the mid-2000s or something, it looked like it got, you know, it got pretty tough with him in the media. Now he's kind of come full circle again where he smiles and, he, you know, he answers the questions. Did what progression of your relationship with him? Did you sort of see that transition from you know young guy to you know full on professional? And then the, the, the I assume that fence goes up deeper and deeper. And then are you seeing the same thing that we all kind of are since you kind of know him better that it really does look like he's playing with joy now and doesn't mind the process and seems more open to let the public in a little bit. Yeah, I, well, certainly what happened was you know you'll recall clearly that. You know, after Tiger first started doing shows with me, he did a couple of print interviews and he told a dirty joke in the car to one of the interviewers and said, you know, please don't use that. And the guy said, oh, I'm definitely using it. And so Tiger got burned. Okay. Tiger trusted somebody and he got burned. And so he found out fairly quickly that his only safe haven was to do something with me. And so he came in quite regularly until I got fired at the end of '01, and we were we were very friendly. And you know, and I'd seen him from time to time since, and of course saw him at all kinds of major championships. Subsequently, I getting fired didn't end my interest in golf or my ability to go to the the events, and nor nor would I have let that have interrupted me. But I think when he got burned, he got guarded. I think he felt some racism. I, you know. The thing about Jack in 86 was everybody like that. And when anybody who wasn't happy about what happened with Jack, even people who cared for Seve, you know, who ended up making the, the bogey on 15 to Jack's eagle, you know, even people who loved Seve were good with Jack winning. But it's different with Tiger. Not everybody likes Tiger. First of all, he doesn't look like everybody else, and he hasn't had the same life that Jack had, and he isn't considered the same kind of balanced family man, even though he's great with his kids and has a good relationship with his ex-wife, Elon, as I understand it. And so, you know, Tiger isn't universally loved as Jack by 86 certainly was. You know, Jack's love affair or our love affair with Jack really started in 70 after he lost 20 pounds in 20 days at the end of 69 after the Ryder Cup. And he called his clothier and said, in 20 days, I'm going to be 20 pounds lighter, so come out with me again. And 20 days later, he lost 20 pounds. So no teams and green juices and, you know, a year of all kinds of, you know, let's do that. He just he did it like grown men did it at that time, like I do it right now. You do exercise a little more and you eat a little less. This is not complicated. And and that's funny. I, it just made me think for some reason of Jordan Spieth, who I think totally overcomplicates golf now. He He's he's in a place where there's too much thinking, there's too much stress, there's too much bad memory, there's there's scar tissue that he's uh, yielding to and 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 then not letting it get out of the way. But Jack's was universally loved. Tiger's was less so. And yes, Tiger has become more affable. Yes, he's putting on a better face for the audience. No, I do not like the interviews he's doing with that young English woman who mumbles. I, I, I have a, you know, the whole dynamic of that does not work, you know, and even though it's obvious they have a personal relationship, you know, given the give and take that they do now in these little vignettes, it's not working and he's tired and she doesn't know the right things to ask. And so they're not showing him off in the way that they could, even though they have a, you know, 8 million year exclusive relationship with him to produce content. You know, and of course I wrote to Tiger's people and golf TV and said, let me do it. I said, if you let me do it, you'll get exactly what Tiger has to offer. Nobody else is going to unlock him except for me. And of course I never heard back from anybody, but, but this, but yes, there, there's definitely been a metamorphosis in the way that Tiger has responded to, not responded to, and now grudgingly, I think yielded to what he feels is a responsibility at this point to try to be more friendly. Yeah, and I notice it with the young guys waiting for him. It appears, you know, from afar that there's a mentorship that he's, you know, through the team events and probably through phone calls that he's helped that young group. And, you know, in this heyday, 
you would have never seen other tour players wait for him. And to see those guys, you know, even like Poulter, who there's a history with from at least Haney's book, waiting to congratulate him. It looks like he's one of the guys in the frat house now. And I think as a golf fan, it's cool to see, you know, the relationship he has with Mickelson and, and mentoring to those young guys, I just think is fantastic. It's, uh, I never dreamt, uh, he would get there. I always thought he'd be the steely eyed competitor like Hogan was, where he kind of kept to himself. But on a human level, I think fans enjoy seeing that. Well, yeah, he's definitely gotten better at that. But, you know, the real reality is once he's on the golf course, it's Assassin City. I mean, you know, he, he's, he wants to take everybody down. He wants to step on your neck and then he wants to step on it again. You know, that's one of the great things about, you know, watching Tiger down the stretch yesterday. All of a sudden, everything was different. He was in a different mode. He was totally Tiger-esque. Francesco had issues. You know, they all had issues. Kepka knocked in the water. Both were knocked in the water. Francesco knocked it in the water. I mean, it was an, it was a stunning parade. And every great player who's ever played well at the Masters always says the same thing. Oh, number 12? Oh, you just hit a scoring club with a little bit of a draw over the center bunker and just try to put it in that 10-yard strip in the center. And no matter where the pin is, you just take your two putts and go on. It's it's not a hole you try to make a two. If you roll one in, that's fantastic. But this is a hole you're just trying to put yourself in position. You know, and just like Jordan Spieth a few years ago when he came out of that shot with the wrong club and gave it a little shove towards the hole, that didn't work. Um, you know, and we and Weisskopf made one of 11 or a 13 there once doing the same kind of nonsense. So, you know, Tiger was ironclad in his planning and he was ironclad in the way he was able to ultimately pull it off, which, of course, yielded the victory. So, yes, I think he's friendlier, but remember, these guys are 20 years younger, too, and that, that counts for something that's not good in the sense that you don't tend to hang around with people who are 20 years older than you for your for your group because you're interested in different things. I mean, they don't have kids. Tiger has kids. He's got an ex-wife. He's got other stuff. You know, they're more carefree and fancy-free. And but yes, you know, and he, but no, he's not going on holiday with them. But yes, they they all get along much more, and they all have great respect for Tiger. Um, and, and Tiger has respect for them. But Tiger knows that. Tiger's the greatest and that at his best, they can't play with him. And I'm sure the level of internal satisfaction today that the coins of self-satisfaction are bulging in his heart. Yeah, I'd have to imagine, you know, they always said, well, I want to play with him when he's at his best. And that quote Duvall had that said, oh, hell no, you don't. Well, you just kind of saw that. You saw what he could do on the back nine of a, of a major championship and, and play you know, really, really solid, strategic, smart golf. And, um, yeah, they, they finally saw him at, at his best in the biggest stage of what he can do. It was It's great for the game, and I'm sure if they couldn't win it, they would love to see Tiger do it uh, if they couldn't be in those positions. That's sort of what I heard from those guys in the interviews. But, uh, yeah, exactly, like his satisfaction with this has to be, you know, through the roof. Um, and also you brought this up earlier, and I was actually going to talk about these actual two guys because I think it's very interesting. You brought up Rory McIlroy, and what's your sort of view of him and the Masters, where he's been so close, this kind of, if he wins that, you know, final piece of uh, history where he has that green jacket and, and then he has the slam, do you think he's putting too much pressure on himself? I know he talked this week about saying, I'm just going to treat it like a regular tournament. What's sort of your view from 10,000 feet of, of the Masters and Rory at this point? I think it's less linked to the Masters specifically as opposed to some kind of a mental bugaboo and much more related to his golf game. You know, Rory's driving ability is better than anybody else in the game, and the sequence of events that his body makes during his swing with his driver is exactly what you want. There's a there's a lower body turn out of the way, but it's in sync with the shoulders waiting for the arms to get back to impact before they, in fact, open up. So his driver swing is phenomenal. But good pitchers of the golf ball don't do that swing when they pitch the ball. You know, I, I knew Sam Snead extremely well. I knew Seve Ballesteros extremely well. And 
had many long conversations and hitting sessions and rain sessions with Sam and with Sebi. And they, they both basically said the same thing, which is the feeling is when you're hitting a pitching club that you're, you make a little turn going back and that your arms drop down. And once your arms reach impact, then you feel like everything turns through together. And what Rory does with his pitching clubs is he makes his driver swing where his lower body is a little bit, to my view, and it would have been the Sam's and Sevy's, a little bit aggressive. So if you don't have the sensation that, and literally actually doing it, turning everything through together with pitching clubs, it's very difficult to have trajectory control. It's very difficult to have pinpoint distance control. Um, it's very difficult to assess what your ball will do in terms of its reaction, you know, when it lands on the green. So I think he has a fundamental swing problem. And I had sent him a note a uh, night before a tournament several weeks ago, and the next day he came on TV and he said, gee, I got this no- night before last night, and I don't know him personally. And he said, I got this note last night, and he said, uh, he said, you know, somebody was talking about how I need to turn everything together through on my pitches, and he said, this is exactly what I've been working on. And so if he is, I think it's fantastic because I think it's, it's an issue that has to do with his golf. And Augusta National, you know, you get a lot of chances for pitches. Tiger got lots of eight irons, and yesterday, anything seven iron or less, I call the scoring club. And, you know, with his scoring clubs, Rory's not as good as he could be. With his five iron, he's really good, but with his nine iron, he's really not. And the other thing, too, is his putting. I would love to spend some time with him on the putting green, like three minutes. I could, I feel like I could completely sort him out. What happens with Rory is, and it's happening with Jordan, too, is there's way too much mechanics involved in the putting. You know, when Jordan gets to a certain distance from the hole, the closer he gets, <clears throat> the less freedom I see in his thinking and his body language and the movement of his putter head. I kind of see that with Rory. I I think they're much too mechanically bound on the putting green. I have a young friend named Nick Diebel, and Nick lost his dad at a very young age. And when Nick was 13, he's now going to be 20 soon. Um, I met him at my golf course, and I realized his mom was never around, and his dad was gone. His stepdad lived in another state. And so I kind of adopted him as my third son, and he adopted me as one of his fathers. And When he was 13, he shot 90. Now he worked together for a year, and then a year later he was shooting 75. And then his family made him go to some, like, you know, big-name instructors. But he would always just call me and say, can you meet me at the course? And he'd tell me what they were working on, and I'd tell him which things I was good with and which ones I was not. And I noticed that a lot of these, now he's a really good player. He's a freshman at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. He's on the, you know, he's on the, the five-man team, and he he's a plus one or a plus two, and he shoots 66 to 72 or three, and I get on his case when I hear anything that starts with a seven, and last, about a month ago, I went out to the practice putting green where I play, and there were a bunch of young kids like him, and they're all practicing five-footers straight uphill inside right, putting two tees on the ground as a gate. And I said to Nikki, look, how many times are you going to have that putt during a round, five foot uphill? You don't really think you can make a five footer inside right? That's the easiest putt for a right-hander to make is slightly uphill. You, you know, you don't, that's not how you practice putting. I said, now we're going to go to the one edge of this green, and we're going to pick the longest putt we can. There's one. It's 100 feet. So what I want you to do is I want you to take you these three balls, and fairly quickly, without a lot of thinking, I want you to take a look at the line, I want you to make a practice stroke or two, but it can't be one or the other. It's either one practice stroke or two practice strokes. That's it. Some kind of emotion to get the feel and let her go. And I said, and if you do that with 90 and 100 footers, you can't work on your stroke. It's too fast. It's too quick. It's too long. You're on, and you're hitting to a general area. You're not hitting to the inside real right part of the hole from five feet going uphill. And that's how you learn how to punt. You have to have 
feel. This is not about the stroke. The stroke is totally irrelevant. He just has to start uh, when it hits the ball towards the apex. It's not this meticulous sighting has nothing to do with it, and it reduces feel. So the other day I go out on the golf course, and I see Nicky, and he's hitting 100-foot legs. And I said, so how's it going? He said, I'm putting so good, it's a joke. He said, there's no putt now that I can see on the golf course that I can't handle. He said, I don't care how long it is. I don't care how many breaks there are. He said, I know I can two-putt them. He said, and I'm going to a three-day tournament tomorrow. Should I try to get the speed of the greens when I go there? What should I do? I said, what do you think you should do? And he said, I think I should hit the long legs. I said, yeah. I said, you hit the long legs to get the feel for the legs. Forget the feel for the green. That's, of course, obviously what it comes down to, but it's your feel. So practice your feel from 90 feet, from 100 feet, and you have to put everything out because you're going to have a bunch of 8-footers sometimes. You're going to have a 12-footer. You're going to leave one 15 feet short from 100 feet if it's got six breaks and going up and down and sideways. But that's how you learn to putt, by picking putts where you can't manipulate your stroke and you've got to have some freedom. So personally, that's what I would do with Jordan, and that's what I would do with Rory. And then then I'd move him closer to the hole and say, now look, it's the same deal. Even inside of 12 feet, it doesn't become mechanical because there's less break and you hit it harder. It's not that. It's still a field putt. It's the same as a 90-footer. And remember, every putt is different, so every putt's going to have a different stroke. You're not going to use the stroke you made on a 5-footer uphill on the practice green of an inside right putt on a 20-footer downhill with three feet of break from left to right, it's going to be a different motion. Now, you don't want to decelerate in the ball. You still have to make a stroke, but it ain't going to be the one you made for the five-footer uphill. So every putt has its own stroke. And because that's true, nobody has an advantage over you for having a better stroke. This is about feel and imagination and touch. It's just like, you know, hitting a driver. You can't manipulate it through the impact area. That's where it's gathering its speed, and you don't expend the energy there. You're gathering speed. You're gathering speed to bring you around and into your your full finish. So, you know, putting's the same thing. You must have freedom. You must have feel. And I see lack of feel in Rory. I see lack of feel in Jordan. Jordan also has other issues on the golf course, I think, is – left hand gets increasingly weak during the round. And I wrote to his dad and I said, you know, Jordan's got a speed, uh, Jordan Speed's got a tell when he's under stress on the golf course. And I'll tell you what it is. If you'll just contact me and you can tell him, I don't need to talk to him. I said, but I know he's working with a psychologist. I know the psychologist. It's a bunch of mumbo jumbo. He doesn't need that. What he needs is just a couple of quick comments that get him to say, Oh yeah, of course. I said that that's I said that's what I do. So that's what I do when I work with people, you know, where I play golf, people come to me from all over the golf course and say, Teach me how to hit a pitch out of a, over a bunker. Teach me how to do this. And I keep it simple. I say to them, You feel like you make a teeny little turn, the arms drop down to impact, and then once everything is aligned in impact, then you just feel like you turn everything through together. Now doesn't really 100% happen that way, but that's what it feels like, and that's the feeling you have to go after, back, down, and then everything through. And then once people get the concept of it, you can self-teach because then you know when you screwed up that you didn't do one of the things I just said to do. So, you know, and everybody receives information differently, but I'm totally of the belief, simple, brief, you know, make a big deal out of yourself, point out a couple of things. Like if I said that to Jordan and just get more feel-oriented, like I described to you, I don't need to be there with him. And he doesn't need to he practice putts. The first putt he hit, it'll all be fine again. So that's what I think about Rory. That's what I think about Jordan. Yeah, when I see Spieth, it looks like there's just, you know, there's a huge team around him. There's, it looks like he's caught in between just from afar, like, you know, nine different swing thoughts. And to me, he always played his best when he just played natural golf, saw the shot, hit the shot, you know, in 15. And when he first came out and wanted the John Deere, you know, it looked more kind of exactly what you're saying, simpler. Just he could see the shot and hit the shot. And now it looks like his, there's 17 things going on in there. and You know, you just want to see him free it up and go play golf, and not golf swing, play the game of golf. That's kind of 
how I see it, it sounds like you're saying the same thing as well, essentially, that it doesn't need to be this complicated. Well, we saw Tiger go through the same thing. I remember all those rehearsal swings when he was working with Sean Foley and and he would get to the top and then he'd swing to the left way too soon or lay the club off. I mean, all those, you know, the torturous pre-shot routines that Tiger went through for years, which is, of course, consistent with your earlier comment. Well, nobody thought he was going to win anything. Then he could even have a shot. So, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. I think Jordan's just super overloaded and, you know, I, I mean, to me, if I had Jordan for a day, I would just take him out and on the golf course and get in a cart and go play 18 holes and tell him he's got 25 seconds from the time we arrive at the ball before he has to hit it. He has to assess the shot. He has to pick the right club. He has to decide on the swing he wants, and then he has to execute. You get 25 seconds, and if there's any tension in your body, we start all over again. That's what I would do with them. It's all simple stuff. If you if you know enough, if you think it through, if you're experienced enough, you spend enough time with great players like Gene Sarazen and Jack Nicklaus and Arnold and Seve and Gary like I have. Let's talk about uh, the TV coverage. Uh, two questions. Uh, first, what was your overall grade of what you saw from ESPN and CBS for, for how they present the Masters? And then what would you do to make TV coverage of, of golf better and maybe more insightful, a little more exciting? Well, the Masters coverage is, is great. I, don't, I think the announcers are all terrible, but... And I think Nick is is the closest because he was a player and he won six majors and he knows what's going on. But Nance has become like a funeral director and Peter Costas, you know, you can't show up hundred pounds overweight and Dottie doesn't lend anything to the telecast. I mean, she always just says what we already saw. Oh, it's a tough shot. Oh, it's a good shot. Oh, it's rolling closer. Oh, yeah, I know. I can see that Dottie. You got anything else? So, I pretty much don't listen to anything. A lot of times I'll just put on a really great album and, and that's much more satisfying and try to pick something that, that fits the great visuals. So the camera work is great. The announcing is very poor. Um, Scott Van Pelt knows uh, a little bit about golf and, you know, and, you know, he, he gets away with it. And uh, so the fact that there's no commercials is what makes it good because then you get to watch a movie instead of having a movie interrupted by ads. Imagine going to a theater and then, you know, Goldfinger, he's just about to shoot Goldfinger, and they go, wait a second, we just got to run this ad for Cadillac. I'll be right back. And Goldfinger will go out the window of the airplane. It's just, so to me, it's completely insane. There's you know, there's two ways you can make money in showing a, a tournament. You can either run ads like the PGA Tour does, or you can do sponsorships, which means presented by. You get a little less money when it's presented by because they're not going to get to run their ads as much. But um, I think we're going to see a big change because the Masters does it largely commercial-free, which is fantastic, even though they don't, they should come on the air 8 o'clock Friday and Saturday morning. The 4 o'clock thing is, is, is really silly and misguided, and I hope they'll change that. And in the terms of end, but the key thing is they – the, uh, the the um, the the players' championship was largely commercial free over the weekend the last two years. So, if the PGA Tour can get sponsorships rather than ads for its flagship event, that means the whole tour can do that. So, commercials could be cut down by eighty or eighty-five percent, which will bring a lot of people back in. And the PGA Championship and CBS and the Golf Channel are certainly the worst offenders. It's just a, a total greed fest, collecting every dollar they can, and they don't care about the viewers. And, and then the PGA always picks locations you can't even get to. I, they're going back to Kiel. It's it's all about stealing money. They have a relationship with the guy who owns the place. There's a secret deal. I was there several years ago when they had the championship at Kiwa. When you get to the golf course, you can't even see anything. It's kind of golf. It's like trying to watch a tournament at the old course. You can't go on to the course because everything touches everything else. You can't see anything. You certainly can't see anything in Kiwa. And it's freaking 4 million degrees, and it's super humid, and it's a single-laying road into the tournament. So as you drive in, all the parking's on the right side. So as you leave and you're driving out, you've got to wait for every guy who's in the left parking lot to be able to make a left in front of you when you're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cars. They just don't care. The PGA is the worst defender of all. CBS and the Golf Channel are com- equally complicit. But now that the Tour is running the players largely commercial-free on the weekend and the Masters, we know, has been doing it, 
that's the only model that's going to work going forward, particularly given that, you know, other than Tiger, really, you know, and, and we know that he's one of the great players of all time, second Jack because of his record, but there isn't anybody else in his league out there. There's, there's nobody who's going to ever do who's playing golf right this minute that we know of that's ever going to do anything that Tiger did. And, and that's why they're all, you know, interchangeable and less interesting and don't care about their vacations. And I don't get why a bunch of young guys want to go like to a house together or somewhere secluded and not have women around. The whole thing just seems so curious to me. So, you know, I, I'm not into the whole social thing. I don't care about Ricky's hat. I don't think Ricky's a very good player. He's won five times. So what? Guy's already in his thirties. I don't get. I don't get the whole thing. Um, so it's very difficult to have a favorite in a golf tournament when you have ten to twenty guys who are basically interchangeable, except for Tiger when he's doing Tiger-esque things like yesterday. Which is why it was so great because the best player of the last twenty-five years played like that yesterday. And for people who've never seen it before, they got a taste of it. And for those of us who missed it, we got a pretty strong reminder of how good Tiger can be when he's got everything working together. What's your view of uh, the C or the uh, NBC move of having Paul Azinger replace Johnny Miller? And, and what do you think of Zinger as an analyst? Not very good. I mean, he's basically, you know, just just operates on, you know, hip shots and let's see how it goes sort of thing. I People who do TV don't understand that it's a skill set that doesn't just fall from the sky. Just because you don't have a, a, a bag of tools that you show up with, like you were going to do a brain transplant, doesn't mean you don't have to have a skill set. Just show up as having been an ex-player and now you're an announcer. It doesn't work that way. It takes 10 or 12 things to do it well. you know. And so it, it's all just basic nonsense. Now, why is Azinger wearing glasses? Why couldn't he just go get a LASIK surgery so we can see him? And it's bad enough having to look at Tirico. I mean, has there ever been a Krispy Kreme that he doesn't stop in and empty the store on the way to work? How do you show up for work 100 pounds overweight? So, no, I think the Azinger thing is not working. I think he's just playing one note. I think he has 10 notes at his disposal, but he doesn't really care about that. It's just to show up and bang it out. And I think that's how most of it is. And and largely that comes from the producers who are negligibly talented group of people. Nobody really is any good anymore. The last great producer was Frank Turkinian, who started producing the Masters in 1960 and got fired in 96 because Ben Wright lied and Frank tried to protect him. And, you know, Frank was pretty sad about that for the rest of his life. And then he died in 2011. And so the producers today don't really get it. They don't know too much about it. They're not particularly golf savvy and they don't care about you and they don't care about me. And they don't care that people are watching less because, one, there were fewer stars. Two, there were more commercials. Three, there were hitting wedges instead of five iron recovery shots. Four, you get Gary Coke saying, nicely hold from two feet. I can't watch that. In your career, um, you know, I know you were a very good amateur player. Uh, how did how did did you bring golf and media together and kind of get that, that, that start in it and combine in both things? And what was sort of the history on that? Well, when I got hired to uh, join the Golf Channel, I had been studying golf for several decades for my own pleasure. And my, I was the voice of HBO Sports, and a guy at HBO Sports said, Gee, you know a lot about golf. I just got hired to hire the people for the Golf Channel. Would you like to work for us and host shows? And I said, yeah. And it was a whole big process because they said, well, he's never appeared on camera, so we don't know. And and this guy said, yeah, but he's done a million plays in regional theater, and he's a public speaker, and, you know, he, he speaks in front of a crowd even now without, you know, having the credentials as having been in golf media. And so they said, well, let's just test his knowledge of golf and see how that goes. So I said, okay, great. So they used to call me at 3 in the morning in 1994 and ask me the most obscure golf stuff. But I knew that as well as you know your best friend's name. There was no possible way. They could ever bring up anything that I wouldn't know specifically the answer to with 50 side stories. So we went through that process, and and so that worked out well. And then when I got to the golf channel, we hadn't got on the air yet, and I'm going, well, anybody here knows anything about golf, and nobody knows anything about television. And so I went home, and I sat down, and I went, okay, you figure it out. So I decided what I wanted the shows to be like and what I hoped that they would convey and what my goals were, and 
then I started to find out I had already done the research because I've been reading it for 30 years, and I had a really good idea of how I wanted to present the shows, and um, and and nobody else was there. So what happened was, you know, I got to do exactly what I wanted to do, and I realized that I was the best researcher, the best writer, uh, the most presentable on camera, the best with guests, uh, the best with combining historical anecdotes and personal information. And so I just kind of figured it out as I went. And I realized that I had a skill set that I didn't really know about, that I could produce and direct and produce myself and figure out what the graphics should be and, you know, what, what video support should be and, and, you know, and how to get keyed into every one of the guests. And I, realized I had an extraordinary number of skills and gifts that I had not been aware of and I was able to happily meld them together. So it really was just a situation of a job that nobody had ever had before. And then a fellow who shows up who was ideally suited for the job and the job was ideally suited for him. Yeah. I absolutely loved golf talk live. I, you know, it's kind of a precursor to podcast today at some level. And you know, I'm, it looked you made it look easy did did it come easy to you the the process of interviewing or did it become easy because all of the work you put into that interview to make it come across that it's seamless and it's easy and it's a great conversation well it's, it's a little bit of both i mean you know the the trick is that you got to obviously be prepared and you have to have a, an idea of what the answers are going to be so you can know which way you're going to go next so I wrote them all as little plays in my head. So I knew pretty much, you know, how the hour was going to go. I knew what the answers were going to be. I, you know, I knew everything you could possibly know about these people going into the show. So half of it was preparation. And then the other half is, you know, there comes 10 times in every live show with boring people that, uh, that there are going to be moments where you have two seconds to come up with the answer that you would come up with if you had the rest of your life to think about it. And you've got to get it right in two seconds. And I was really good at getting it right in two seconds. I only on two occasions, an interview with Arnold and one with Tim Fincham out of 3000 interviews it was the only time I ever got in the car. I went, Hey, you could have done that a little better, but 1298 times I got in the car and I went, how good was that? I never, ever, ever got in the car and said, oh, I can't believe I didn't think of this. Oh, I should have said that. I was 100% happy with every single performance but two out of 3,000. Never second-guessed myself. And when I go create pieces for Twitter and stuff for my old things, I don't even listen to my question. I just I go find what I know was the right segment for the Masters or whatever it was, and I find me, and I go to the beginning of my question, and I don't even look at it or listen to it because I knew it was great then, so I knew it was great now. And then I would just go ahead, you know, and, and, and just trust myself, you know, then to do the right things. And, and so today when I cut these little vignettes, I just look for where I start to speak, and then I just go to the end of the guest's answer because I know both were great. I remembered it. You know, if I don't remember all the words, I knew it was super-duper. And so... You know, so I'm as comfortable today with my work as as I won as I was when I did it. And it's funny because I meet so many people, you know, in various walks of entertainment. But so if I could do that over, I could do this over. I don't really want to do any of it over. I I couldn't have been happier with all of it. It's better than anybody else has ever done by you know leaps and bounds and eons and light years. And, uh, and there's nobody today who knows anything about it. And to me, it's rather sad. Because there's nobody, I mean, I blazed a path, it's pretty wide, it's pretty deep, it's pretty clear, and, and there isn't anybody who followed it, and, and people today have such surfacy knowledge, and guessing who's going to win tournaments, oh, for God's sake, no, you know, what's the stock market going to do tomorrow? Nobody knows. Some play. Of all those interviews you did, who were maybe two or the three of the most interesting and fascinating people you got to interview? And was there an interview you always wanted to do that got away that you, you, you just never got to for a myriad of reasons, potentially? Well, we didn't get Hogan cause he was sick and Jones was dead and Hagen was dead, but we got everybody else. So, 
you know, I pretty much interviewed every single great player and teacher of the 20th century. But yeah, there were some that we missed. I missed some of the women who founded the LPGA. Don Cherry was a player and a singer. You know, there were a few people that we didn't quite get to, but we got to 90% of them. And of course, you know, interviewing Gene Sarazen when he was 95 was particularly special. And Every every show to me was. I mean, you know, Seppi and I became great friends. He had dinner at my house. My his wife was friendly with my wife. The kids knew each other. He and I hit pit shots all the time. So the people that I ended up having the relationships with, like Tiger and Jack and Gary and Arnold and Seve and Ben Crenshaw and you know, really there there were just so many that, you know, turned into friends. Tommy Bolt you know, ended up being one of my closest friends, treated me like his son. And, you know, I probably played 100 rounds of golf with him. Never saw him miss a fairway, never saw him in a greenside bunker, never missed a shot. Even at 91, remember one round we played, he shot 69. He hit 16 greens in regulation. He pitched in for Eagle on the 17th from 50 yards. And then the one green that he missed, he missed by a foot right in the front. And the pin was 20 feet away from him, so he put it in exactly the right place. And he would go to his bag, and he'd pull out a club. And then he'd go, no, and shake his head mournfully. That's not the right club. And then he'd pick another club, and then he'd go back to the first club. It was all just to entertain me, because I knew exactly what shot he was going to hit. And so did he. It was a straightforward 20-foot chip up the hill with a little tiny little break. He'd hit the same club every time he's hit 10,000 times before, and he used to say, Man, I've never had a shot like this before. So you would let him do his whole routine. And then, of course, he chipped it in for three. And he said, man, it sure was a tough lie. It was nothing. So, you know, I got to know all of these people. And all of those experiences were fantastic. And Sarazen was unbelievable. I'll tell you a last story before I have to run it. I, when uh, Gene Sarazen, as a, a young man, actually, and his older two, lived in New York. And he lived north of New York City, and it was a 40-minute train ride from where he lived in Harrison into New York City with several stops. And I lived later one stop further away in Rye, so I was very familiar with the train ride. So in the 1920s, when Gene, who was the first man who won all four major championships, used to go to New York City, he would take the train. <clears throat> Gene figured out if he took the train from Harrison that a couple of stops later at Pelham, landed there at 1.15, that the Ziegfeld Folly showgirls, who all lived in an apartment complex in Pelham owned by Florence Ziegfeld, the great showman and producer, that they would all be getting on the train to go into New York for rehearsals and to play that night. So Gene used to take that train. And then he would get off the train. Remember, the train's only going to be there a few seconds. Open the doors, close the doors. He'd get off the train. And he'd look for this one blonde and follow her onto the train. And he used to get dressed up. And he said she wouldn't give me a tumble, which I thought was a great phrase. Just like 1925. All of a sudden, now, 1985. He's playing in Bob's Hope's, Bob Hope's tournament um, as a guest. And he's now 83 years old. And a man comes up to him as he finishes his last hole and says, there's a blonde woman who would like to see you. And he said, well, what woman would have any interest in an old man like me? And the guy said, well, just come with me. He's there up in, uh, you know, the box with Bob's people and everything. It'd be fun. So Gene goes up and he said, there's this blonde woman there. And she said, do you remember me? And he said, well, I looked her over and I didn't remember her. And, and she said to me, well, she said, I'm the blonde that you used to flirt with on the train tracks in the mid twenties, 60 years ago. And I, just want to introduce myself. My my name now is Mrs. Bob Hope. So he did stuff like that for an hour with me when we did our show. And his uh, family later assured me it was his best memory night in decades. I'm sure that's probably not exactly true, but that's what they said. And But he was brilliant and he stayed with me. And we talked about the double eagle and Bobby Jones and Walter Hagen and Shell's Wonderful World of Golf. And and funnily enough, when I was 20, I played with Gene Sarazen and Reggie Jackson completely by accident in 1972. I was a member of La Costa in San Diego. I was the club champ there in 76. And and they used to come grab me and say, a couple of cool guys are here you want to play with. So one day they said, hey, Gene Sarazen's here with Reggie Jackson. I said, well, I'm in. 
And, uh, you know, nobody knew anything about Gene Sarazen. I knew everything about Gene Sarazen. So by the end of the first hole, we were big friends, and we had dinner that night. And, you know, we talked about golf, and he shot in the 60s. He was 70 years old. I shot in the 70s. I was 20 years old. Reggie Jackson was in his 20s. He shot in the 80s. And on the third hole, Reggie Jackson and I figured out that we were both dating the same girl, the woman who ran the gift shop at Lacoste. And he was upset, and I was thrilled because I figured I could have dinner with the two of them. I wasn't interested in her anymore. I wanted to talk to him about. I want to talk to him about hitting, and, you know, and that kind of stuff. And he said, "What are you kidding?" I said, "Come on." So we ended up becoming friends for a little bit, and uh, that's my Gene Sarazen story. Well, I got one last question for you, and I'll, sure. I'll make it quick and get you out of here. So, I'm, as you know, I'm on my uh, quest to get Mr. Tom Weiskopf on the podcast. I think he's uh, a, it's a fascinating person with yep. many oh, layers, and yeah. And uh, so, let's say I'm lucky enough to get Mr. Weiskopf on. What advice would you have for me for that interview? Uh, well, you got to make sure you know his career cold. You need to look up all the print interviews that he's ever done and anything you can find on video. You need to watch my old show with him. I did a print interview with him in 04 for Golf Magazine that was fantastic. You need to read all of those things. So, And then you need to decide, you know, then you need to just put out a legal pad, really, is what I used to do. And just anytime I thought of a question during the week, I just wrote it down. Anytime you think of a Tom Weisscott question, just write it down. And then when you get closer, then you know, the list starts getting long. So you start culling it down to your best 10 or 15 questions. And Tom's real chatty like I am. So, you know, he knows, you know, what you want. He knows what the audience wants like I do. So you're not going to be able to ask him that many questions. All of a sudden you're at two hours. And, you know, with Tom, 30 minutes, 40 maximum. But you got to let him get out of there. So you've got to pick your 10 best questions, and they all have to be a 10. And they all have to pass the sniff test. This is as good as I could have done. And then you do exactly what you did with me. I, I, I checked you out. I heard that you were very good at this. And you ask really the good questions, and you stay out of the way, and you don't interrupt me. And it's very hard to do. It's very hard to do because I've been on your side of the deal. You know, you kind of hear something. You go, you want to drive in, but, you know, you just let the guy go. So let him run. It's kind of like having me, except, you know, in terms of golf, he's certainly had a career a billion times more interesting than mine in terms of the playing side of it. But, you know, you want to talk to him about that night. He went out to a golf course he was building, and he almost got sucked under in the muck, and it took him hours and hours to get out, and all of his clothes actually came off in the quicksand or whatever the muck was that he was stuck in. And, you know, you certainly want to talk to him about his design philosophy want to question him on Jack Nicholas's design philosophy, which will elicit some interesting answers. You know, you want to talk to him about, do you still love the masters, even though you tied for second four times? So, you know, it's those kinds of things. And, and you've done it with me today. So I don't really think, you know, I, I don't really think you need much advice from me. I, this, this went exactly as it was supposed to go. And, and you sent me in directions I was absolutely delighted to to, to, to to be jettisoned off to. So you just keep doing what you're doing and just trust yourself. And, you know, you and I are friends, and, you know, you can always contact me, and you can always run something by me, and you're younger than I am, and I didn't have anybody to help me. I had to do it all by myself. And But I was lucky enough that I, like, for some reason, I don't know how I was able to do it all, but I did it all, but not everybody's like that. And, you know, 99.9% of people should call somebody like me and say, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? You know, there, I need to be mentoring more people who are on camera who I could be helpful to. And there's quite a few that I do help whose names I won't mention. But, you know, I, I'm here to be leaned on. I'm here to be used at this point. I'm here to give advice at this point. You know, I, I, I've done everything. You know, there's nothing out there. I'd like to do more. But I've done everything. You know, I I got to do everything I wanted to do, and I did it better than everybody else. And, you know, you're off to just super start with, with the work that you're doing here. So my advice to you is just keep doing it. Keep getting better. Your questions are crisp. Your questions are clear. There's no ums and ahs. So you're way down the road. So at this point, it's just refining your technique, making sure you're happy with the list, and always imagine that it might get cut shorter than you like, so make sure that every question is a 10 so that 
there's not one you're waiting to get to and you didn't get to it. Get to it. Get to it right now. Go to your best stuff right now. You don't work your way up. It's not like accelerating on the highway to 50. You start at 50. You don't work your way. There's no easing in. You just go. And uh, I think you know most of that stuff already, and I'm happy to give you the reinforcement, but I think you're very good at what you do, and I'm very pleased to have been on the show, and I'm delighted that you asked. And believe me, between you and I, Wise Cop will be doing your show. Don't you worry your little heart. Well, thank you so much, I, and I will be leaning on you when I when I hopefully get him to uh, degree to go on. So thank you so much for your time today and your insights, and um, thanks for all the work that you did in your career. It, it really did inspire me to kind of do this, and um, you know, you're kind of the first out there. So uh, you're influencing a lot of people of, of the work that you did in your career, and I thank you for it. Uh, it's a pleasure, and it's a pleasure with you, and thanks for your interest in me and keeping my name out there, and that's important to me still. So. This has been a wonderful experience, and I was really looking forward to talking to you, and it was everything I hoped it would be. Thanks, Peter. Have a great day. Same to you, my good friend.